to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. We continue in our series through the book of Ephesians. As we talked about a few weeks ago, Ephesians is a letter, um, the word epistle. If you, if you have a Bible in front of you, it may say epistle or the letter to the Ephesians. This was a letter that the apostle Paul wrote the Ephesian church. Um, he wrote this church a letter, giving them instruction on how they were gonna live and a vision for the type of church that they were going to be and what he longed for them. And so we talked about how in chapter one, everything flows out of a relationship with Jesus. Um, all the blessings we could ever want from God come through knowing Christ. And last week, Pastor, Pastor Aaron, um, who is our... Um is the, uh, the lead pastor of our Brighton congregation, actually preached for us. And in preaching for us, he, um, he unpacked the end of chapter one. And, and, and really, if, if, if that touched you and that blessed you, I really would encourage you to send him an email. Um, send Aaron, A-A-Ron, if you ever watched Key and Peele, A-A-Ron uh, at uh, coahchurch.org. And, um, and really just encourage him. We wanna build a culture of honor uh, we want to build a culture where we tell people how they've blessed us and how God has used them uh, to bless us. So be sure to shoot him an email. Uh, but last week, um, he, um, he, he helped us see the power of God on display. In verses 19 and 20, we saw that the, the immeasurable greatness of his or God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly Places And so we saw how the, the power of God led to the resurrection, Jesus raising from the dead. And for Christians, that is the central claim of the Bible, that Jesus rose from the dead. That is the central claim that we believe. And we believe this because it displays the power of God and it shows that whatever Jesus said was true because Jesus, like Babe Ruth pointing to center field, called his shot. Jesus said, you will tear this temple down in three days, in three days, I will raise it up. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, we are fools. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we have no hope. But if Jesus raised from the dead, it displays and proves the power of God. And it shows that everything else Jesus said was true and everything else Jesus says demands our trust. It displays that God can do anything. And, and the thing is, is, if we believe in a God who is a God over all things, who's all powerful, all knowing, all seeing, he can raise someone from the dead. And what that showed us as we lead into chapter two is that that is what we need God to do in us. We need God to cause a resurrection in our hearts and in our souls. And that the only way to have a relationship with God is if God does something like this in us. If God causes a resurrection to happen in us, because as the passage we are going to look at today says, our situation is desperate. And until you realize how deep your problem is, you won't understand how radical a solution you need. And until you understand how desperate your situation is, the gospel will not change you and you will not turn to Jesus. Imagine that you go to the doctor and you're going in for your checkup and the doctor's looking at the blood work and he's looking at, at your file and he says, there's something wrong with your heart. There's a big difference if he looks at you and says, hey, you've got high cholesterol, you need to change your diet, you need to exercise. There's a big difference between that and him looking and saying, sir or ma'am, you need a heart transplant. 
And for many of us, we are trying to make small changes to our spiritual diet or to do some spiritual exercises when what we really need is a new heart. And the question we're gonna unpack today is this, do I really need a savior? Do I really need a savior? And I believe how you see yourself will help you answer that question. Because if we're trying to make small changes when we really need a new heart, we're never going to run to Jesus as a savior. If we see ourselves as pretty good people who just need to make a few tweaks and do things, a few things a little bit differently, Jesus and what he seems to ask of us will always seem too much. But if you realize this morning that you need a new heart, you will cry out, doctor, please save me. You, want, you will not want a savior until you realize that you need one. And so today we're gonna look at three truths that help us answer in the affirmative to the question, do I really need a savior? Now, before we get to the good news, we gotta look at some bad news. So just hang with me for a little bit. It's gonna get rocky. It's gonna get rough. It's like when you're on the plane and the pilot says, we're gonna hit some turbulence. We're gonna hit some turbulence for about 15 minutes. So just hang with me, okay? The first truth we need to look at and understanding if we really need a savior is who we were. Who we were before Christ, who you are right now if you do not know Christ. And the first part of understanding who we are is to see yourself and assess yourself rightly. I really loathe the show American Idol, except for the first two weeks, because that's the reject weeks, right? And you hear the person get on there and they start to sing and they have no business singing. No one has been kind enough or nice enough to them to look at them and say, you don't see yourself rightly. You don't have the ability to sing. You definitely can't sing Celine Dion. Don't do it. They couldn't see themselves rightly. In the same way, we do not see ourselves and our situation rightly because we look at ourselves and we typically think, I'm not that bad. We, we think of it kind of like being just a little bit out of shape. The pants start to get a little tight. It's around the holidays. Man, I need to go for a run. I need to lay off the sweets. We think, you know, I'm not living like I should. I need to tighten some things up. Maybe I feel spiritually something's off, so I need to go to church. I need to be kinder. I need to care for the poor. And then we think, if I can just get those things in order, then I'll be right with God. But that's not how the Bible describes you. That's not how the Bible describes me. It says in verse two, and you were dead. Not impaired, not limited, but dead dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not off course, but dead. Not sick, but dead. Meaning spiritually, internally, not physically, we are dead. And this goes back to the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve, when sin entered the world, they began to die. They were dead spiritually, which would lead to them dying physically one day. What it means is that without Christ doing something in our hearts, we will want nothing to do with God or we will want God on our own terms. And the reason is, is we imagine ourselves not as spiritually dead, but spiritually sick. And when you think about sickness, we think of degrees of sickness. You know, it used to be when you got like the cold, you could go to work and kind of gut through. Now, if you have a sneeze or a cough, everybody thinks you have COVID, so don't go to work. But you could kind of gut through it. There's that kind of sick. There's the sick where it's like, I just need to take a day off and recharge and re-energize. And then there's those days where you get the flu and you're out for an entire week and you watch everything on Netflix. We imagine ourselves as spiritually sick. 
We imagine ourselves as spiritually sick and that's why we compare because we say, you know, not only am I not that bad, but I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not an adulterer. I'm, I'm not as bad as those people. But the Bible says you are or were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is comprehensive. Trespasses, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is like going past the no trespassing sign. It's entering into places we should not go and wanting to be the ones who are in control of our lives, getting to call the shots on what is good and right. But then also sins, which means to miss the mark. Imagine that you're shooting at a target with a bow and arrow. It means that we are missing God's perfect and holy standard. And that because of sin, we were dead. And this is not just something we're picking on people. This, what I'm saying this morning, I'm not saying Christians have it right and everybody else has it wrong. I'm not just saying a certain group of people are good and a certain group of people are bad. Verse three says, all of us once lived this way. It goes on further to say that this is a problem that the, like the rest of mankind, this is a universal problem for us that every single one of us is a sinner separated from God that without Christ, we are spiritually dead. And sin is really just trying to live life apart from God. And so spiritual death is life without God. And it means that you can be a good person. It means you can be a moral person. It means you can even be a nice person and still be spiritually dead because we're trying to do those things apart from a relationship with the living God. And we show this death every time that we rebel. Every time we decide we know better and we get to set the rules and it's all about us, we decide, we, we show this every time we fail to live up either to God's standards or our own set of rules. We show that we're dead every time we do something wrong or we do something right for the wrong reasons. And so sin separates us from a holy God who is other. And because he is holy and because he is perfect and because he's unchanging, it requires a sinless life to be with him because sin is rebelling against God as our king. And because we're spiritually dead, we will stay dead until God does something in us to make us alive. It is the law of inertia. It's the spiritual law of inertia that an object will stay in motion or stay at rest until something acts upon it. We were, we were spiritually dead, but we're not just dead. We were enslaved. Verse two says, in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The, the terminology there of walking and following um, has this idea of this is how you conduct your life. This is how you regulate your life. And the idea of walking feels like freedom because sin is, intends to make us feel like we're free, but it actually enslaves us. James K. Smith is a Christian philosopher and he says that no one is actually truly free. None of us are free because whatever you give your heart to will control you. And so whether you give your heart to Jesus or you give your heart to your career, or you give your heart to God, or you give your heart to your kids or the promise of a future relationship or a better situation, that thing will control you and begin to dictate how you live your life. And sin is kind of like the freedom with which a dog would run. Like if, you ever, if you've ever lived out in the country and you, maybe you don't want to let your dog run off. And so you take your dog and you get a long leash and you put it on a runner. And a runner would be tied from one tree to the next tree. And that dog will just run back and forth on that line, on that runner, feeling like they're experiencing freedom, but really they're just going where you're allowing them to go. Sin is the exact same way because what we feel like frees us, actually enslaves us and always leads us to death. 
It enslaves us in a prison that will lead to death. And outside that prison, there are three guards standing watch over us. We see here in in verse two that we're following after the world, following the course of the world. The world enslaves us. By the world, it means the way that the world operates, kind of popular opinion, just going with the flow of our culture. There's a popular opinion about what is good and true and beautiful. And every person you talk to, every political party, every company is giving you something, selling you something and telling you this is the good life. This is what's good. This is what's true. This is what's beautiful. And the problem with going along the course of the world is what happens? It's constantly changing. Think all the way back into ancient times. There's never been a point where the world just got this right and the world lived out a purely biblical ethic. And so we tend to look toward the past and say, ah, the golden days when we just, you know, everything was more moral. Or we tend to look toward the future or right now and say, we are so much more evolved than those those people in the past. But in the ancient time, in Greek and Roman, the Roman world has been romanticized. Think about the way that women were treated. Women were, were property, they were objects. How much does that stand in difference to the Bible, which liberates and values women as those equally created created in the image of God? Think about the way the infants were treated in in the ancient world. If there was any sort of perfection, they were thrown into the dump. What about the 1800s and chattel slavery? What about 1960 and segregation? And so we think in 2021, we've got it any better. There's never been a point in which the world has accurately lived out God's ethic. John Stott says, every age is bound to have a blurred vision of its own problems because it is too close to them to get them into focus. The gospel challenges every culture in every time and calls us to live differently. And so to follow after the world is simply to give into the culture. And if you live long enough, that will be disorienting and entrapping because you realize that the goalposts are constantly moving. And so some good questions we can ask ourselves as to whether we're following after the world or we're following after Jesus is, do my choices look any different than my unbelieving neighbors? Do I value the same things as they do that it's really more about my comfort than about God's mission? It's really about my priorities than Jesus's priorities. If we're following Jesus, our lives are gonna look different. Before Jesus, we were also enslaved by the devil. Now, there may be some eye rolls when you hear the word devil, and I think it's because of the way we think about the devil. We think of the devil as that cartoon character, right? He's the, he's the little guy sitting on your shoulder in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork. That's how we think of the devil, in the 80s, there was this huge scare that Satanism was going to take over and everyone's going to start worshiping the devil and it probably had to do something with rock music. And every, that was what was going to happen. But years ago, I met an actual Satanist. I'm sitting in a coffee shop and there's this guy who has tattoos over his entire body, like 85%. He has his eyelid is tattooed. I'm like, that is both awesome and terrifying. And so I start talking to this guy. I get to know him a little bit and I just start sharing the gospel with him. And he says, he's a Satanist. But it turns out there are two kinds of Satanists. Most Satanists are not devil worshipers. There's, there's a form of Satanism called Levian Satanism, which is just humanism. And this type of Satanism is it's not devil worship, it's honesty. It's honest. Because that type of Satanism says that you are the center of the universe. It's all about you. 
and all about what you can get from another person. And any sort of good or sense of moral is really, morality is simply about you and your own personal satisfaction. And in that way, crazy enough, before Christ, we're all Satanists. That sounds nuts. But Satan is not the guy holding the pitchfork. He's the tempter in the background lying to us who will, will gladly facilitate you being the center of the universe, not outright showing up to you in evil, but whispering lies and giving you affirming nudges and, li- and placing lingering doubts in your mind. See, following after the devil or the prince of the power of the air means to seek our own pleasure at all costs. And all of us have done this before Jesus. The terminology, the prince of the power of the air sounds made up. It sounds like a made up title, like assistant to the regional manager, if you ever watched The Office. But the terminology, the air, in the Greek understanding was the space between heaven and earth. There was this world in which there was this spiritual world around us. And the sense here is kind of a, an everywhereness, that, that everywhere that you look, there is air, there's oxygen all over this world. And this was the sense that the air itself was polluted, it was impure, and that everyone everywhere was breathing in this air and living this way. And this is why 1 John 5 says that the whole world lies in his power. And it says that this, this prince of the power of the air, the spirit, which by the way, the spirit means breath or air, um, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Meaning this, that this permeates everything we do and everything we think and everything we experience and that we become dependent on him like sons. If you ever read the book, The Lorax as a kid, or you watched the Lorax movie, um, this, the, the, the plot of that book or the movie is that all the trees on earth have been destroyed and now they're having to manufacture air. And so um, the world is a really uh, poisonous place. And in the movie ad- adaptation, there's a character named Aloysius O'Hare who begins to bottle air and sell air to people, but he only does so by making sure that a tree is never planted. He substitutes real air for air that he sold them. So they became dependent on him. In the same way, the spirit of this age is now at work in us, meaning that every broken thing, everything that's disordered, everything that's unjust, every sin and doubt and struggle that you experience is Satan working to draw and keep your heart away from God to help you try to find life in something that will never truly give life. And all he does in doing this is he doesn't do this by scaring us, but he does it just by provoking what our sinful hearts already want. And that's the third guard, which is the flesh. The third guard is the flesh. In verse three, it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Martin Luther said that sin causes our hearts to turn in on themselves. It becomes a cul-de-sac. Imagine that you're trapped in a room full of mirrors. Now, there are two experiences of that. Some of you are like, oh, yes, I look good. Um, the rest of us are like, oh, my gosh, I've gained a little weight. I don't like the way that that looks. I, I don't like being able to see myself in every possible direction. But both of those reactions have the same heart, right? It's all about you. And all you can see is yourself. If you're someone who you look inside your heart and it's like, it's like that, that room full of mirrors and maybe life's worked out for you and you feel like you're a pretty good person, you feel you're educated, you're successful, you're beautiful, you have everything you could possibly ever imagine, you look at the mirrors and you think, I'm pretty awesome. 
And we will do whatever it takes to keep that. Or maybe you're the person who looks at your heart spiritually and you go, man, things just have not worked out like I wanted. I thought I'd be in a different place. I thought I'd be in a different career. I thought I'd have live in a, a different neighborhood. I thought I'd have different friends. I thought I'd, I wouldn't have experienced this pain or this suffering or these, these deep wounds. And you don't like what you see when you look in the mirror and you're constantly trying to find something to change those things. Both of those things are the same heart because all you are looking at is yourself. And this causes us to carry out the desires of our body and mind, literal cravings, like you're craving food. And those things are not satisfied until they are satiated. And what happens when we take the desires of the body and the mind is we take good things and make them God's. We take good desires like friendship and food and sex and love and ambition and twist them in such a way that we will use them and use other people to get what we want. And because of this, lastly, who we are is we were condemned. Verse three, by nature, we were children of wrath. There's something fundamentally wrong with us in our core that without God intervening, we will always seek ourselves first. We will always reject God and we will never pursue him if it is left up to us. And this is why you cannot have a relationship with God by any other means than Jesus. The Old Testament serves as an example of how if it is left up to us and our ability to keep the rules and our ability to, to keep our relationship with God, we will fail time and time and time again. It clearly shows that we are never going to get it. And because of that, sin is due the wrath of God. And I know the words like wrath scare some of us. We don't like words like wrath because we've either experienced our own temper tantrums or we've seen them in someone else. Maybe you had an angry father. And so when you think of God being wrathful as a father, it scares you. But know that God's wrath is not like our wrath because God's wrath is always just. John Stott said that God's wrath is God's personal righteousness, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. We want that out of God. Even if you don't believe in God this morning, even if you're here and you're exploring, we're so glad that you're here. If you were to believe in God, wouldn't you wanna believe in a God who would do away with evil? Wouldn't you want a God who would punish murderers and punish wrongdoings? We would want that. We wouldn't want a God who would let oppression get away. We wouldn't want, we wouldn't want a God who wouldn't ultimately deal with racism and poverty. But we're selective. We want God to deal with all evil. And that means everyone, everywhere, but usually we draw the line right at our feet. We want God to deal with all the evil and all the injustice except for us. And if he's gonna deal with all the evil in the world as a just God, he has to deal with my heart too. God is right and just to condemn us. And you might be thinking, I don't like that. I don't like it. That sounds like bad news. And what you may be thinking is no one is good enough. No one can live up to this. We're all in trouble. And if you are starting to hear that, you're starting to hear the gospel. If you're starting to hear that, you're starting to hear how desperate your situation is because you have to look at the test results. You have to look at the blood work. You have to let the doctor's diagnosis get deep because you were dead, you were enslaved, you were condemned, but God. 
but God being rich in mercy. You were once dead, but now you've been made alive in Christ. You were once enslaved, but now you have been raised up and set free. You were once condemned, and now you are guiltless. We have to see who we were in light of what he did. But God, the giant eraser of the gospel, which erases your past, it erases who you were and gives you a new identity because your old self could not save you. You were dead in your sins, enslaved, condemned, and helpless. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his very own son to the cross for you. Why? Because he is merciful. He is merciful. How merciful is God? He is rich in mercy. He is loaded in mercy. Jeff Bezos is the richest man on earth. He's worth $190 billion. I did the math on this. He could give a million dollars a day away for the next 520 years. That is how rich in mercy God is. The kind of mercy that has an unlimited, unlimited supply that he will keep giving and he gives all the mercy and grace necessary to take the wrath and punishment that you are due on himself. God is both just and merciful. Jackie O'Perry Perry says, Jesus had the guilty in mind when he hung high and stretched out wide. He bare bodied and face set on joy became as a slaughtered lamb underneath the wrath of God. Didn't he know that wrath, that wrath was mine? It even had my name on it, but he knew without asking my permission, a good God had come to my rescue. It doesn't say becoming merciful, means being rich in mercy. God, God doesn't move towards you once you start to figure it out. He doesn't wait for you to show contrition. He doesn't wait for you to feel sorry. While we were still dead, Christ came and made us alive. That's mercy. Before you ever loved him, he loved you. Before you ever asked, he came to you. Before you ever wanted him, he rescued you. Because dead people can't call out. They need someone and something to make them alive. This is Jesus calling out to Lazarus and saying, Lazarus, come out, come to life. He died to make you alive because he saved you by his grace. By his grace, you've been saved. By his grace, you have been saved. You did nothing to deserve it. Nothing to earn it. It is the free gift of God. And that's why we can't say, God, I'm a good person. Because when we say, God, I'm a good person, what we're saying is, God, is you owe me. You owe me eternity. You owe me freedom. You owe me a relationship with you. But if we understand grace, we understand the undeserved, costly, free gift of God. Not only do you begin to see how desperately you need a savior, but how freely he has been given to you. And when you see that, the question begins to shift from, do I really need a savior to how can this Jesus save me? And simply, if you've not done this, it is receive it. It's surrender your life to him. Admit that you have no other hope and give yourself to him. And if you've been wrestling with this, if, if you feel like there's been something in your soul, you're just warring with this, this is God calling you and beginning to make you alive. Receive Jesus by trusting him today. Lastly, what does this mean for our lives? What do our lives now mean because Jesus is a savior? See, we've been saved from sin by Jesus for life in him. And there's a key phrase, if you look at it in verse five, where it says, 
together with Christ. Now, actually, that relates to three different phrases. It relates to being alive in Christ, uh, to being raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. All of those are related to being in Christ. And all of those are in the past tense, which means they were done. They were completed. They're not things that will happen if you just don't mess this whole situation up. But these are realities that you get to live in through simply trusting placing your faith in Jesus. So if you're a Christian right now, your entire life is found with Christ. If you're not yet a Christian, you're being invited into this life in Christ. And as Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You were dead in sin, but now you're alive in Christ. You were enslaved to sin, but now you're raised to freedom in Christ. You're condemned in sin, but now you've been seated with Christ. That being seated with Christ is a place of honor. And it, you may not feel very honorable. You know, when it comes to uh, how the gospel shapes us and changes us, it addresses both all, also our guilt, our shame, and our fear. We see guilt and forgiveness. We see you know, how power pushes away fear, but also there's a place of honor for us that pushes out shame. You've been invited to be seated with Christ in a place of honor. And here's the thing about being seated at God's table. Even if you don't feel honorable and you feel shame because of abuse or because you've been belittled by someone or life just didn't turn out like you hoped it would, if you've been invited to the king's table, it doesn't matter if you're poor or rich, you're still a guest at the king's table. You're a guest of honor. And what this means now that you're alive together with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, you're seated with Christ, is that Christ is going to continue to pour out his mercy and his grace upon you. Dane Orland says, the river of mercy flowing out of God's heart took shape as a man. Grace is not pocket change that God gives to us when he sees that we need something. It's a relationship with God himself. This is how God is merciful to us. He embodied grace in coming to us. And this is why Titus 2 says, when grace appeared. If you have a relationship with God, you are consistently being given grace. There's not a moment of your relationship with him that you're not receiving grace. Dane Ortland goes on, he says, when we squander the mercy of God, whether that's one big mistake or a million small ones, what does God do when we squander that mercy? He gives us more. Because if you're in him, that means that whatever Christ overcame, you overcome. The sin, your sin, death, the grave, because you will be with him forever, because he'll live forever, so will you. But the second part of life in Christ is so that God will do something and show something through us. Verse seven says, um, it says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Our lives become a display of God's grace and mercy, both now and for others, forever. So he's doing this both to us, which we talked about in a minute ago, he's constantly giving us grace and mercy, but also through us. A city on a hill as a new church, what we wanna be is we wanna be a church where our city sees how we have experienced the gospel of Jesus so that every person from every culture can experience that same gospel. And what it means to be a city on a hill, the imagery we see in Matthew chapter five is this place of safety in the distance. This, this light that other travelers can come to and find life and safety. And what best shows that? It's not perfect people, it's forgiven people. 
It's not people who have it all together, but broken people who've been made new. It's, it's not good people, but dead people who've come to life. Because when our neighbors and our friends begin to see that, they stop seeing us and they see Jesus. It makes our lives transparent. It becomes less about us and more about him and they see him who works in us. So imagine if you were to go to the modern or to the Museum of Fine Art in, in downtown and you see a beautiful painting on the wall and you're staring at the painting. What do, you, what do you always do? You look at the painting and you may stare at it for 20, 30 minutes. You eventually take your eyes to that little placard right next to the painting. It moves from painting to painter. And our attention moves from, wow, what a beautiful painting to what a gifted painter. In the same way, God has displayed his kindness in Jesus to us that we get his grace and his mercy and he gets glory and praise both now and forevermore. As we close, understand that this passage includes all of us. You either were dead and have found life in Jesus or you are dead and you're being invited to life in Jesus. And this morning, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, what promises of a relationship with him are you forgetting? What areas of your life feel dead but are actually alive? What, what areas do you need to realize you've been raised to freedom and you can step out of stepping back into that prison cell of sin? Where do you feel shame but could actually feel honor? And if you've not yet trusted Jesus this morning, I wanna invite you to do so. We do this every Sunday because I believe we call people to trust in the gospel of Jesus. If you this morning have seen your need for a savior, Maybe for the first time, you've experienced the depth. You've, uh, you've looked at that doctor's report in depth and it's hit you. Maybe for the first time this morning, you're seeing what Jesus did on the cross for you. You can have that. Your next step is to trust him. Your next step is to give your life to him because God can make what was dead alive. Let's pray.